Hey, GeoTrekkers, welcome to the GeoTrek podcast. We have a special episode today for anyone interested in international type of stuff, cross-cultural stuff, getting into landscape architect. Our guest is Associate Professor of Landscape Architecture in the Department of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Planning at Utah State University. Benjamin George, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Thanks, Al, for having me on. Appreciate it. I'm really excited. You called me up, I guess, a couple months ago. A lot of your students are traveling along the Gulf Coast uh, over spring break, using their spring break to learn about uh, planning and, and landscape architecture along the Gulf Coast region. I'm excited to meet them this week. And that kind of got us introduced and uh, we started some interesting conversations. Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to them being able to meet you. And obviously, your your podcast listeners won't know, but originally I was hoping to be live with you there to experience uh, your tour and stuff. So I'm, I'm uh, sad. I'm not going to be able to, to be on that trap trip with them and get to go on the tour, but I'm really excited for them to be able to do that. And I appreciate you making that possible and available. Well, to them. I can't wait to meet them in person. And this is a great time of the year to come to the Gulf coast. So maybe next spring break, you could uh, make it down yeah. this way. <laughs> so, Benjamin, Sounds I wanted good. to ask you, you're an associate professor in the department of landscape architecture and environmental planning at Utah state university. So some of our listeners may be a little bit confused about the field of landscape architecture. Could you explain what that field is and uh, what professionals in the field of landscape architecture do? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the profession um, obviously has really deep roots going back to to the dawn of civilization, similar to architecture, right? But um, you can point to like all the great gardens and the urban spaces. And I think most everybody would agree that's an example of, of landscape architecture, you know, things like Versailles and, you know, whatever. But modern, the modern profession itself is thought to um, have started with Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park, um, along with his collaborator, uh, Calvert Box. And so in 1863, actually, he used the term landscape architecture, um, or a landscape architect, I should say, as as his professional moniker. And so that's kind sure. of where you would point to and say this is the origin of the profession. Um, it's tempting to just think of landscape architecture as as gardens, and that's a common mis uh, misconception. Sure. So funnily, we we have a lot of students that have to explain to their parents, I'm not going to go, uh, you know, go to college to learn how to mow a lawn or something like that. Um, but my wife, who was our academic advisor in the department for a long, long time, she would describe landscape architecture to, to people, professional, uh, potential students, their parents, et cetera, by saying, you know, look at the space between the buildings and all of that is what landscape architects do. And so that's everything from the traditional landscaping. And I'm sure. doing air quotes there for your listeners, but the planted spaces, the landscaping, the circulation paths, whether it's pedestrian, bicyclists, vehicular, we touch the streetscapes, plazas, you know, parks, um, zoos, theme parks, waterfronts, the planning of neighborhoods and towns, all the way up to planning at a regional scale, um, where we're covering across thousands of, of square miles. So we work at a sure. lot of different sites, a lot of different scales. And that's one of the things that makes us pretty unique, puts us at the intersection of a lot of different fields. We have to know how to you know, talk to and collaborate with um, a lot of different professions, architects, sure. engineers, planners, biologists, ecologists, you know, sociologists. Sure. It's a long list, gets pretty long. Um, but that ability to be the middleman um, and to make sense of the interface between the built environment and the natural environment is 
I think what really makes us valuable in uh, in today's society. So that kind yeah. of in a nutshell is what we are. Well, that's fantastic. And I'm thinking, you know, your urban parks, your bike paths, your your walking paths, your pedestrian areas, these things don't just happen, right? They have to be mm -hmm. planned out and very intentional, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, they should be. I you say they they do happen. Um, <laughs> you know, there is stuff that just happens, and you go back and you look at it and say, "What were sure. they thinking?" And oftentimes, it's that they, there was no thought that went into the planning of this um, or the design of this. And that's where you know the case that we bring. We can you know we say as a landscape architect, we're going to make your spaces, your community, work better, function better, be more beautiful, and you know serve the entire community. No, that's fantastic. My undergrad degree was actually in geography. And one of the electives I took was in landscape architecture at Penn State University, really one of the best classes I had. And it made me rethink how I see urban and suburban and just the the, the built spaces. You know, I, a lot of things mm -hmm. that I just took for granted. I'm like, wait, that that maybe had yeah. been planned or, or designed that way. Yeah. And, and it's funny because a lot of people, they are not even aware of the professional landscape architecture. I was not aware of it until I got married and my wife, her dad was a developer. Or he is a developer. And, uh, and so she was aware of landscape architects. She wanted to go into landscape architecture and she was the one that introduced me to it. Um, but it's, it's funny because obviously, like I said, if you look at the space between the buildings, there's, you know, who designs that. And, um, but we never really, a lot of people I think don't ever give second thought about where do these spaces come from? Um, yeah, so. no, it, it provides context. I think that uh, the, the backstory kind of, right? Like how, how this was mm -hmm. planned or, or the reason for maybe the, some of the designs we see on the landscape. Yeah, absolutely. And, I wanted to ask you, so, you know, landscape architecture, environmental planning, it can help mitigate the impacts of extreme weather and natural disasters. Um, or, can you think of some examples where maybe planning the landscape actually helped to mitigate some of these extreme, you know, whether it's an extreme weather event, natural disaster, yeah. how does that play in? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. Um, kind of like talking broad scale. So we would work in, in two different ways to do that. The first would be um, prevention and the second would be mitigation, right? And so prevention, you know, if we talk about that, um, you know, we have some decent safeguards built into our city codes about where you should build. Um, probably one of the thing that most people would be familiar with would be floodplains. Okay. Um, and so, you know, obviously we're, we're involved in that design process of a site. And one of the things we're going to consider is, you know, like, where's the floodplain? Okay. Let's not build a house. Sure. Let's not build a store, et cetera, in a floodplain. Okay. Now that's, that's um, low hanging fruit, right? Per se. But if you we're, we're going to try and dive a lot deeper, consider all the different factors and trying to make design determinations. And um, sometimes, you know, you need to go back to the client and say, hey, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't be building sure. in this location. Right. Um, the proverbial just because we can doesn't mean um, we should. Yeah. So um, or maybe we need to scale things back. And that's kind of more uh more likely it's pretty rare a project gets canceled because of natural okay. disaster concerns right i mean it's not like the state of florida has said let's stop building because of hurricanes. sure sure okay um so but um but anyway so most of what when what that means because we're not we're not really canceling projects because you know stuff uh, is in a dangerous spot it's, it's that sure. most of our work is going to fall into mitigation right? How do we, this project's going to be built or the site already exists. What okay. can we do to, you know, mitigate for it? 
Um, so a couple, you know, one, let me give you one specific example that I think is a, a nice uh, example exactly of what we could do. And then maybe just touch on a couple of different um, general, like other, other areas. The first, uh, but this example is, um, you know, is there, we're really involved in a lot of work with, with sea level rise and with um, the impacts of storms and their impact on coastal communities. Obviously lots of the population lives at the coastal communities. Landscape architects do a ton of work in recreation, waterfronts, you know, and all this happens at that, that edge. And so it's, uh, so we have a lot of, uh, we're very invested in how do we make these areas uh, successful and preserve these areas. So um, one specific project was done by a couple uh, landscape architects um, at uh, Scape, uh, which is okay. a firm, and then Stantec, these two firms on Staten Island, right, in New York. And what they did is they, uh, after, you know, Hurricane Sandy came through, I, I can't remember what year that came through, but uh, there's been a lot of re-looking at, okay, how do we preserve or protect, mitigate this type of stuff in the future? And so um, they designed a, uh, a living break wall, uh, breakwater, I should say, and then also um, accompanying site shoreline um, project on the site. And so uh, what they did was they designed and, uh, and tested these varying heights of breakwaters to reduce the amount of waves and erosion that's going to be sure. happening. And it's not, it's not preventing flooding, the breakwater itself isn't going to prevent flooding, but flooding, but it, it minimizes erosion. It makes the shoreline more resilient. And what's really kind of cool is that they engineered, uh, they used these engineered concrete stones, which allowed them to then design them. And um, they designed them with little niches to provide habitat for sea life, right? So not only is it then this breakwater that's very functional, but it's also creating habitats and, you know, improving the ecological conditions there. Um, so that that was built. And like I said, it doesn't prevent flooding. It does prevent um, or helps to minimize erosion. So it makes it sure. makes the shoreline more resilient. But then it was accompanied by um, called the Tottenville Shoreline Protection Project, which was built. Uh, basically, it's a series of artificial dunes that were created to keep flooding out. And any floodwaters that got past um, to like trap them in in kind of pools to protect the coastal communities. Yeah. Um, and, but it's designed as a park, right. With paths and open space. And so most people probably, you know, they don't even realize it's a practical flood defense. system. Sure. They only see it as this beautiful naturalized kind of coastal habitat that they go recreate in. And they don't, they don't recognize that it's actually, you know, um, helping to, to protect those communities there. So that's, that's like one example, like specific example, um, you know, other things for us out in the West, I don't know if, if you consider this a, a, a natural disaster. I mean, it is, but drought is sure, a huge, absolutely. You know, huge issue for us out here yeah. right now. And so, you know, we're very much involved in looking at how do we, how do we update and change the plant selection? I mean, sure. For the, for the West, most of us, you go and, you know, you go to Home Depot and, um, or a lot of garden centers even still, uh, you know, you're buying the same plants that you could potentially buy on the East Coast where. Yeah, very so interesting. Water, right. Um, and so looking at updating our plant selection are, you know, are what sure. we're looking at um, and then looking at like mimicking nature and how do we use, you know, because we're surrounded by these beautiful landscapes that millions yeah. of people flock to in the national parks. Right. Um, and they require no extra water other than what 
you know, mother nature gives it. You're so, right. There's a natural so habitat we, that's, that's, uh, yeah. in, in, you know, natural to the area. Right. And it, that's, uh, it makes sense to kind of pay attention to what mother nature is doing already yeah. in the area. Right. Exactly. And so we're designing with nature and we're trying to recreate that, um, to, to create these landscapes. They're still beautiful. They're still lush. People still love it, but it uses way less water. Right. Um, you yeah. know, so, so examples like that, um, we have similar practices with trying to prevent and or mitigate for fire, sure. um, you know, when fire, fire, uh, large fire events, uh, you know, looking at, at winds, obviously we're not going to really mitigate that much for, for a hurricane or tornado force winds or something, but we get really strong windstorms like say here. And so getting into, you know, down to the, what tree are you going to plant, but up to like broader planting shelter belts, um, things yeah. like that, managing storm watering communities from storm, storm, uh, water events and stuff. So, so that's kind of some of the other broader areas as well. Um, that yeah, that's interesting. In. You know, Benjamin, I, I lived for a year in Broomfield, Colorado between Denver and Boulder. And I thought it was interesting driving down the you know, we had a two lane road that had a median in the middle and then two lanes on the other side. And almost every day they'd have the sprinklers out. That whole thing was mm -hmm. just a carpet of grass. And I was thinking, you know, yeah. I don't know, they get what, 22 inches of rain a year or something. It's a semi-arid climate for sure. And it just made me wonder, I mean, in the case of the Intermountain West, getting out towards the West Coast, do you just have a lot of people with kind of an East East Coast mentality that move out there that just think the median should have grass, my yard should have grass, as opposed to maybe rock gardens or, or some things that fit better with the climate in the semi-arid West? Yeah. And I mean, you think about this, this is a cultural, um, there, there's cultural heritage and baggage, I guess, that you could say with this, because you know, this, the, the colonial um, landscape was mimicking kind of, old, you know, jolly old England. Um, and and the Northeast was, was somewhat similar climate wise. And the South sure. was obviously very lush as well. Um, and so as we've marched across the country, we've kind of carried this with us. Um, but it's really interesting. Compare that to, say, like California landscapes, which had the heritage of um, of Spain. Sure, and sure. Um, Spanish landscapes, right? Uh, very, very different. Very much more conscious of what uh, you know of water conservation and things like that. Um, but you're right. There, there is still this legacy in much of the West of um, I got to have my grass, and yeah. you know, a beautiful yard is a is a green grass yard that is mowed sure. twice, you know, a week, and and um, and we've you know, we're fighting to change that. Um, here in Utah, we're looking at, you know, there's very dire projections for the future of the Great Salt Lake because sure. all the water is being diverted to irrigation and stuff like that. And, you know, residential is a relatively small slice of the pie as far as the, the water usage goes. But um, at the same time, um, we we're all kind of all in this together, right? So <laughs> yeah, and I could see landscape uh, architects, I could see planners and landscape architects really at the forefront of all this, right? Because it, it is about Absolutely. the landscape and it's about planning. And really, I, I know you get wetter years out there, but it's not that uncommon to have what two, three, four years in a row of extremely dry conditions, right? Where your yard Absolutely. isn't going to make it. Oh no, absolutely. And I mean, right now we are having one of the, the wettest, you know, years on record. I was just up skiing 
uh, yesterday and, and, you know, the ski lift is <laughs> like the, the lines are so much closer to the snow below me. I can oh, yeah. just jump off at any point. Right. But, um, you know, but before that we had two, three, I'm trying to remember, I think it's maybe like six or seven years since we've had a really good, uh, you know, snow or even an average yeah. kind of snow season. Um, and the last couple of years, it feels kind of like the summer monsoons have failed. So um, it is, it's something that we definitely have to be very cognizant of. And, you know, projections are um, these types of droughts are going to get more severe and uh, more frequent here in the West. And uh, we need to be prepared. And it's not one of those things that you can just overnight change. Yeah, sure, um, sure. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, your, your water sources, water uses, and like you said, a whole mentality of the culture, that takes a while to turn that ship, right? Uh, absolutely. It definitely does. It's a big, it's a Herculean effort. So, well, and Benjamin, it's going to be interesting for me to meet your students this week because I'm in a yeah. very, very humid area. I mean, the, the Gulf Coast is really probably the most humid area in, in North America, you could argue. Very humid, very a lot of precipitation. Your students are down here uh, this week looking at, at flood protection and understanding the region. Could you tell me a little bit about this trip that they're taking, a little bit more about what they're learning and, and kind of mm -hmm. what the aim of, the, of this spring break week is for your students? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, for them, they're looking at is we're going to eat a lot of beignets and uh, crawfish. Boy, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, the food yeah, is great. <laughs> yeah. No, but um, the real reason that so we do this, it's a requirement that uh, students have to go on a, a travel trip. and The department puts together a bunch of different trips and we take uh, students to, you know, the goal is to take them somewhere different. Right. Sure. And than what they're experiencing here. Um, so that they're able to go and uh, see different cultures and communities and their approaches to design and, you know, things like that. So yeah. um, primarily, you know, what we want to have here looking at, as they're coming here is to look at um, looking at the Gulf, Gulf Coast and to see the coastal communities sure. uh, and their history and um, to start thinking about the future of those communities in an age of sea level rise and the impact yeah. you know, that, uh, that that's going to have on these communities and how do they, how do they adapt? How do they change? You know, uh, can they adapt? Um, et cetera. Sure. So, um, so yeah, it's a very different, very different landscape from the, the one that they're uh, used to being in, uh, up here, but, uh, I think it's going to be a great experience for them. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that's, there's a huge value, I think for students to get out and just experience a different region of the country. Right. You're facing different mm -hmm. hazards, different cultures. You get into South Louisiana, you have a lot of different flags have flown over this region, you know, a lot of interesting history related with the French and the Spanish. And I think they'll be getting a lot out of this trip. So really cool that y'all chose the Gulf Coast for that for this week for them. Yeah. And they're they're having a blast. So they're gonna see you in a couple of days. It's gonna be fun. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be great. I think they'll find Galveston's like a little mini in New Orleans in a sense. A lot of our architecture is from the mid to late eighteen hundreds. You know, obviously uh -huh. we had a massive hurricane, the deadliest natural disaster in US history was September eighth, nineteen hundred, right here. So we'll be talking a lot about that with them, just very different issues than you would find, I think, in the Intermountain West. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. It should be uh, fun. It should be Benjamin, fun. I, reading your biography, I couldn't help but notice you really have this love for the Iberian Peninsula, for Portugal, for looking at their history, at their landscapes. 
And, you know, I'd ask you this question about how landscape architecture and environmental planning can help mitigate disasters. I wanted to ask you, you know, the, the little bit I know about the Iberian Peninsula and disasters, something that really stands out seems to be this 1755 Lisbon, Portugal earthquake. I mean, it was a massive earthquake, huge tsunami for parts of Western Europe and North Africa. Could you tell us a little bit about that event and also just your interest in that part of the world and, and your perspective on it? Sure, yeah. So let me just start by saying, uh, you know, my interest in it comes from my dad is Portuguese, uh, immigrated from he he did not, but his his grandparents immigrated from the the Azor Islands out in the middle of the Atlantic, Portuguese islands, and so I've always had this, uh, you know, um, familial affinity right for uh, for Portugal, and that's uh, that's kind of what what draws me to it, and then sure. uh, it really helps that we live in a this arid region, region, and like I was saying. Um, I think there's a lot we can learn from how uh, the Iberian Peninsula has developed and what cultures have done there to uh, to deal with their environment. So that's kind of sure. the history of why I, I'm interested in it. So, uh, yeah, the 1755 earthquake. Do you want the long story, the long and interesting story, or the uh, <laughs> <laughs> the cliff notes? Um, so it was um, – a lot of your listeners might not be familiar with it, Okay. Um, I'm a pretty big history buff. I wasn't aware of his existence until I read um, this book, The Day of Atonement by David Liss. It's a historical fiction. And and I thought it was set against the backdrop of the earthquake. And I thought it was just a fictional you know, thing added yeah. only discovered. Nope, it was it was an actual event. <laughs> um, it had incredible uh, global impacts, both on society and design. It was a real game changer um, for Western civilization. It, it fundamentally changed really. Um, our relationship to religion and nature, and it led to innovations in in the design of buildings and stuff. So, um, to kind of set the stage, um, we need to understand the history of Portugal or or kind of the context of Portugal. So, um, Portugal was uh, a relatively poor backwater uh, kingdom on the periphery of Europe, right? And if they wanted to trade with the rest of Europe, they either had to do it through Spain, which they had a, a pretty fraught relationship with over the years. Or they had to utilize their sea routes, and so they preferred to do the later. Okay, uh, and um, and so that led to a lot of investment in naval capabilities, and so they uh, that led you know to trade and you know crucially kickstarting the age of exploration. And um, you know during the 15th century uh, and the 16th century, Portugal and Lisbon um, became phenomenally rich. Um, Liz, they imported so much gold, they actually broke the gold market in Europe, basically. Wow, um, I didn't realize that. Because, yeah, they they were absolutely just incredibly rich. Uh, and so they went from being like kind of the poorest of the poor <laughs> to then the the, the richest, most, most wealthiest, and, and really established the first kind of true, I would say, global trading empire. Um, you know, everything and that turnaround the, would have been like 16th century, maybe 17th century. Yeah, really, it really started in the 15th century when they they started getting around the Gulf of Guinea down to okay, um, you know, kind of like modern Nigeria, uh, sure. that area there, and then really it was at the end of 14 the 1490s. You know, you know, um, Columbus went to um, the Portuguese first mm. and said, "Hey, I want to, I'm going to go sail east." Uh, or sorry, sail west and get to to China, right? Um, and the Portuguese, though, were already, they told him no. Um, they didn't think it was possible. But they also were had already heavily invested in 
trying to get around the the Cape of Good Hope. And they okay. succeeded in doing this basically at the same time that Columbus went over to America. They succeeded in getting around. Um, and so they were so going they south kind of around Africa. Africa. They were going south. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they got to uh, to India, you know, established like Goa. Um, they, um, they, they put toeholds in the Middle East along the, the, sure. uh, the East African coast all the way over into the Spice Islands, um, you know, modern day, you know, Indonesia and stuff. And became phenomenally rich, like just insanely rich off of this. And then, of course, just icing on the cake, they got Brazil, which sure. was also, you know, resources wise, phenomenally rich and stuff. So they had um, all these resources like 15th, 16th, 17th century. Yep. 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 So expanding, expanding, became very, very rich. Um, and so by the time 1755 rolls around, um, Lisbon has a quarter of a million people living there it was the fifth largest city um in europe it was famous for its wealth obviously um the uh down at the heart on the waterfront you had uh the torero do paso which is today the Praça do comercio okay and this was the waterfront along you know the the, the tagus the, the tejo um this was where the 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 royal palace was in lisbon or one yeah. of um the ribera palace there um and it had probably the largest library in Europe, actually, at this time. Um, and then another important civic palace, and I'm going to mention it just to kind of try and tie things together. And in, in the narrative here was um, the Rocio, which okay. was which was kind of like the main civic plaza. Um, and this is where what what was called the Auto de Fe happened. And this was basically kind of think of the the Portuguese version of the Spanish Inquisition. It was okay. the Portuguese Inquisition, and it was a religious festival so to speak um <laughs> where victims of religious heresy were humiliated and punished and many of them ended up being burned oh in wow this. and um lisbon was incredibly pious so like over 10 percent of the population of lisbon was in a religious order right of oh, okay sort. interesting i mean that's it's an insane percentage yeah. wise um and the country was actually in the middle of this kind of like anti-enlightenment phase as well, whereas like all the rest of the world had become, or all the rest of Europe was becoming more enlightened. Um, they uh, see um, it was. I'm trying to remember which queen, anyways. But the royalty basically was like, no, we can't have any of that enlightened thinking. We got to like, you know, kind of go double down um, on kind of like more direction. religion and things like that. It, yep, yeah. uh -huh. And so, so Lisbon was known as this really pious city like all throughout Europe, it's like, well, okay, hey, maybe we don't, you know, even the, the English, we don't agree, you know, because they're, they're Catholic, this is after the Reformation, sure. et cetera, and stuff, but um, but it was still recognized as a very pious city. So insanely rich and insanely pious, okay? So, um, and that's important because 1755, the earthquake struck, it was November 1st, which is All Saints Day, right? Sure. In the liturgical calendar of the Catholic Church. Um, and so all the churches were were packed, and, and actually, this was kind of the one of the first things was that um, the bells had just stopped ringing for calling people to um, to, to celebrate, right? And um, and people described hearing the bells start resonating, and um, kind of like you know the like if you have the wet brim of a of a glass and you yeah. you, know, you put your finger around it and you get the glass to resonate. So um, the bells started resonating. That was kind of like the first um sign that the earthquake was was about to happen and so nine about 9 45 was when the first wave of the earthquake struck and this is in the morning uh, 
this was in the morning, 945 okay. in the morning. Right. So um, the earthquake was uh, estimated to have measured 9.0 on the Richter scale. Wow, that's massive. Absolutely massive. So one of the strongest, most violent earthquakes in recorded history. And sure, you know, I mean, we just we just had those tragic earthquakes in in Turkey. Right. Yeah. And I think those were were six point eight um, uh, was the largest on that. And you got to remember as well, the, the Richter scales logarithmic. Right. So sure. Yeah. Um, it's becoming and, and you think about like the damage, you know, obviously now we know, unfortunately, there was cutting corners in some of the sure. building and construction in Turkey. But you think about a, a stone and brick city getting hit by 9.0 earthquake. Yeah, that's and when you say logarithmic. So a magnitude eight is 10 times stronger than a magnitude seven, which is 10 times stronger than uh -huh. a magnitude six. Right. So you really ramp up yeah. in those higher magnitudes. Right. Um, right. That yeah. sounds like incredibly so, violent. And like you said, just for a, a stone and brick city, I mean, the damage must have been astronomical. Absolutely. And and it wasn't, you know, I mean, it just the intensity itself. And people talked about it rolling like a ship. Yeah. Right. Um, on the sea for two minutes. So this it, wow. two minutes, the earthquake happened. Um, people ran out of the churches. They ran out of like homes, et cetera. Um, and people would be crushed by everything collapsing, whether it was inside or outside. Um, and what became problematic for later on then was is that um, because it was an old, you know, it was an old city, you had all these serpentine kind of system of streets. Okay. And it just became this impassable jumble of debris. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so anyways, the, the, it lasted for two minutes. Everybody, you know, there was a minute break. I think it was a minute or two minute break. Um, and then a second tremor, a second earthquake hit for, and that was two and a half um, minutes. And then there was another little break. And then there was a third final major aftershock. Oh, wow. That hit. There's really three was, different earthquakes. Yeah. So it was three. And, and so that one was four minutes. So you've got almost nine minutes um, of shaking, you know, uh, absolute just devastating destruction, right? Being visited here on, on the city. Yeah. Um and so the the heart of of urban Lisbon, the Baisha, was in complete ruins, and wow. it had been built on um, it had been been, been uh, sorry been built on uh, infill of where sure. it used to be kind of an extension of the of the the river. Yeah. Um, and so, anyways, that all got just absolutely destroyed. Um, so down at the waterfront, the palace though was still largely intact, and there were a couple of other spots. If you ever have okay. gone to um, to Lisbon, and if you haven't, and all your listeners, if you have not gone to Lisbon, um, it is the most one of the most beautiful cities. But um, there is uh, this neighborhood called Belang, um, and that it still has these really old monuments that were built um, because by you know just a fluke of geography. Uh, or sorry, not geography of uh, of geology. Belang was basically left unscathed, um, but the rest was completely, you know, pretty much completely devastated. Yeah. So, so you let the cat out of the bag about the tsunami there, um, <laughs> but um, that that came later. Um, so, and of course, you know, everything's in ruins. Uh, people are flooding. They're they're afraid. We've had these aftershocks. So, sure. you know, where do they go? 
they they go to the large open spaces and one of the largest then was this the 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 uh the torero do paso down by the uh the river and so you have thousands of people who've made their ways down here and then of course the water recedes out of the river and then sure. tsunami comes crashing in and it just sweeps everybody away um it washed away the the warehouses right where they had all these stores of gold and items and stuff like that which would have been incredibly helpful after you know post yeah it just like washed a lot of those away completely just completely gone and in fact there were so they're just like there were three earthquakes there ended up being three tsunami surges okay um and by the end of it they said you could walk across the entire river to the other side just on the debris wow. that was left um but then just to make it worse right because it was all saints day everybody had started fires to come home from mass and oh, to start yeah you know, to start to have a meal. Sure. And so all these little fires, then, you know, basically the rubble turned into this giant tinderbox. Oh, wow. And all these fires merged together into one, you know, pretty much into one mega firestorm. And it became so intense, it created its own, its own weather pattern, basically. So and, it was um, really earthquake, tsunami, fire. I mean, it's really like three yeah. hazards all triggered by the original seismic event. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And the fire got so hot. Um, it was, it melted glass. So, so wow. hotter than 2,500 degrees. Right. Um, so it's estimated that at least 50,000 people died. Um, wow. some estimates are up as high as a hundred thousand people. Right. That's amazing. And you um, said there were a quarter million living in the area to quarter, start with. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, even on the low end, that's one out of five people, but like it might've right. been higher than that. You're saying. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I mean, there's really no way, you know, one of the challenges that historians and even, you know, like the the uh, the government, uh, no way of really knowing because so many people were washed out to sea with the tsunami, would have been burned beyond, you know, any recognition. Um, or a lot of people were just like, that's it, I'm done. And they just left. Yeah, yeah. And, and they just never came back. Um, so, so that was kind of the event itself. And... Um, and then you have the knockoff of like, okay, well, what did this cause sure. in society and and in um, in design? And um, you know, one of the things was that this was actually the the earthquake um, sparked a really lively debate amongst philosophers. Voltaire commented on it, uh, basically sure. saying like, you know, well, this wasn't an act of God; this was nature exerting its power and stuff. Um, but Rousseau, uh, Jean Jacques Rousseau. He had some really interesting things where he was responding to to Voltaire saying, you know, where Voltaire was saying, oh, this is this is all nature and stuff. And he said, well, wait, it wasn't. And I, I found this quote and I wanted to to share it because Rousseau wrote, um, admit, for example, that nature did not construct 20,000 houses of six to seven stories there. And that if the inhabitants of that great city had been more equally spread out, more lightly lodged, the damage would have been much less. Um and I think that's pretty interesting, basically, for Rousseau to accuse and say, well, uh, maybe this was so bad because of poor urban planning. Oh, like right? building in the vulnerable areas, perhaps, and, and building, such building dense population. And, yeah. You know, so, you know, okay, um, like, sure, people are going to be there, but, but uh, or sorry, Rousseau is essentially saying, you know, what we now ask ourselves is, um, 
or or accusing, I guess, humanity of supreme hubris. You know, sure. should it? Like, you know, should we build there? And um, and he concluded by basically saying, like, you know, if we build a city here, does that mean that we're like nature isn't allowed to have earthquakes? Right. Like, you know, yeah, so it's um, really kind of getting at this whole man versus nature thing and what's our role and, and even what's our fault. Right. If if we're living in places mm -hmm. we shouldn't be living, perhaps. Yeah. And I mean, and the thing is, is that we experience this, obviously, you know, still today. Um, and and it's one of those things that we we always uh well you know a natural event uh happens some disaster happens and and there's inevitably these questions of like well why why do people live there i mean every time there's a hurricane in florida sure. right and you see these photos of you know things just washed completely away and the question comes well why why do we allow people to build in these areas or you know whatnot um but it, it comes down even to smaller things um, like for instance, here in Utah, I talk to so many people when they know that I'm a landscape, you know, work in the field and they're like, okay, Hey, uh, uh, the deer come down and eat my plants and I, I hate it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, you, you built the deer's habitat. So right, they were you know, there like, first, right? Yeah. Nature was here and we're, we're building in nature. Um, sure. and, and it is, but we've, and especially as our, our technologies increased, we have definitely developed this hubris, right? This sure, vanity sure, sure. that we can conquer nature. And then of course, nature just comes along and says, I don't think so. And, you know, increasingly shows the, uh, the impacts of, of what it can do, what it can dole out. So, well, yeah, that's true. And, you know, something we've seen here in hurricane country, you'll get people say, oh, I've lived here 50 years. My neighborhood never floods, right? When you go yeah. back deeper in history, you see all kinds of catastrophic things that happen. But you're mentioning hubris, sometimes even people just feeling like, well, if I haven't seen it in my 40, 50, 60 years, it can't happen. Right. And so right. this is where we get blindsided again and again by things that absolutely can happen. We just thought, hey, I haven't seen it in my 45 mm -hmm. years, so it'll never happen. Right. So we see a lot yeah, of people making dangerous decisions, um, thinking, uh -huh. what you know, what they've seen in the past 45 years is everything that can happen. And that's really not true. Sure. We get lulled into that false sense of security. Um, getting back to like that Turkey earthquake, you know, they were talking that was like the biggest earthquake. And I can't remember what I think it was back to like Roman times or something sure. like that, you know, but yet, yet we knew this is a seismically seismically yeah. active. The time uh, scales of certain disasters, you know, I think about the Pacific Northwest. I mean, we haven't seen a big tsunami mm -hmm. come into Washington, Oregon, really in the modern era. But when you talk to geologists who've done some coring and they've looked at sediments, they've said, man, we see evidence, right, of massive tsunamis. Yeah. But the time scale, they, it's not even like a Florida hurricane that might come around every decade or two. These time scales are mm -hmm. huge. But Again, at some point, nature comes knocking on the door and repeats maybe what it's done before yeah. we, we knew about it, before our modern era. Um, yeah, it, it's true. So, I mean, like, well, let me tell you how some of the the design sort of changes that came out of this learning experience of sure. the disaster then in Lisbon, because I think some of it's really, it is really interesting. Um, so when they, they rebuilt, the first thing, obviously, it was that they didn't want another earthquake to come and knock down yeah. everything again. Um, and so they they developed this um, innovative building uh, or architectural you know design where they they constructed wooden cages with uh, 
you know, a square grid and then with with di a diagonal grid laid over the top of that to, to try and, you know, um, control for the, the shaking. And to, so they, they built this flexible wooden frame and then they put the facade around the frame. So Benjamin, you're earthquake. talking about the construction of a, of a home or a building post earthquake. Okay, exactly. Yep. Yep. And so then if there was a, 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 an earthquake, the facade might fall off, but the structure itself wouldn't collapse. And now if that sounds familiar, it should, because that's, you know, how most modern buildings are built today with this, this inner frame and then that, that artificial facade. Right. Um, and what's particularly noteworthy was that the Portuguese actually built miniature, you know, in like scale models of these and then would march, they'd have their soldiers march around uh, to mimic the movement of, you know, of an earthquake. And they would look at the model and see, and they would make changes of their design. And so it's really interesting to see this emergence of, you know, engineering um, structures through, through modeling um, where they, they set that up. They also then pioneered the introduction of fire breaks um, in the sure. neighborhoods to prevent the spread of fire um, through the, through the city. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting that I learned about was also um, in order to speed up the process of rebuilding, they implemented um, um, standardization of building materials. Oh, and, you know, okay. I mean, it's another one of those things that we in the modern age, we just take for granted. Um, you, you know, you go down to uh, you go down to, to Home Depot and you can buy a two by four and a, you know, an eight and a 10 and a 12, whatever length and stuff. Sure. Um, but it used to be everything was, was, you know, there was no standardization. Um, and so the, the government introduced standardization so you could design to a certain size and, and get all this material and stuff. Um, and then, you know, probably most noteworthy though, was the redevelopment of the design of the actual fabric of the city. And um, so the Baisha, which was kind of the historic or urban core there, yeah. um, they redesigned it with these rectangular blocks, classical facades, wide streets. Um, so no more like serpentine streets that, you know, um, it was really gotcha. almost a century ahead of its, its time. Um, it would be mimicked by um, Hausman's redevelopment of Paris, um, Lafont's um, design of Washington, DC. Um, and so it was really also an early precursor to the, what's known as the city beautiful movement. And if you think of like the Chicago world's fair, the yeah. architecture there and that whole time that was the city beautiful uh, so Benjamin, this so, concept of like wider boulevards and things like that you're saying some of that was inspired by development po in Lib yeah. Lisbon post eight, 1755 earthquake yeah uh, in this reconstruction and this pattern yeah. um was one of these you know these early urban models saying this is how you know we might uh might develop that was then looked at and inspired future developments elsewhere. Um, yeah. It's so interesting. So, you know, what you said about standardizing materials, we just take for granted that that's how we operate. And even a, a friend of mine used to do framing, you know, and uh, that's just so a uh, prolific way that we do building as well. Right. We, we can go to a mm -hmm. new subdivision, you see the frame go up and then you see the materials around it. It sounds like a lot of influences came from really like planning and, and, you know, development, in Lisbon post-1755 earthquake that we might not realize that they still influence us today. Yeah, there was all these threads that kind of like have survived through and, you know, were picked up elsewhere and reinforced elsewhere, et cetera, and stuff. And um, it was really, you know, it was really interesting. Um, and it also, I think, emphasized the need for 
um, uh, strong, strong central bureaucracy. So the 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 person leading the effort, um, the Marquis of Pombal, um, he really um, basically dove into this and took a firm hand and said, "Okay, we're yeah. going to we're going to implement these policies. We're going to do these things, etc." One of the things that, um, as well, we saw was the use of uh, eminent domain to sure. confiscate a lot of properties to redevelop. And, yeah. and eminent domain was used before so that, you know, like nobles could build whatever they wanted. Yeah. But this was one of the first uses where it was used to not benefit just a few wealthy elite, but to right. really redevelop benefit the masses. City. Benefit yeah. the masses, yeah. And so we see, we see the application of that then still yeah. um, today. They renovated their their sewer system. And it was really, really, that was really important and set the standard for new sewer systems, you know? Yeah. So it, it, it really was, there was a lot of things for an event that, like I said, I think a lot of people are totally ignorant of. Um, it, it had, you know, there's things that have resonated throughout history, you know, kind of uh, well, and Benjamin, something day. that stands out to me in this story is that no one ever would have wished that catastrophe to happen, just like any other catastrophe. But actually, like good did come out of it, right? And so we yeah. see that sometimes you, I, you know, you go into a hurricane zone or a tornado zone, and often a community says, "Hey, we're going to build back better. We're going to build back stronger. We're going to make changes." And those changes can really help mitigate and, and you know, reduce losses and save lives in the future, even though the original event, no one would have ever wished it. Hey, Benjamin, we're almost out of time. I know our listeners are going to love to connect with you. Can you just share, yeah. are there certain professional meetings you go to every year? Can people find you online? Like, how can our listeners connect with you and find you? Yeah, well, I mean... Honestly, I have a terrible online presence. <laughs> so, um, uh, but so one of the best ways is just really to kind of check my department website, which is laep.usu.edu. Um, if you add a backslash slash um, backslash vivid, um, that takes you to um, a research lab that I'm part of. Um, but yeah, I'm at, I'm at mostly academic conferences and, and things like that, but people can find my email and, and don't inundate my, my inbox with emails, but you know, if somebody's particularly interested or wants to connect, you know, they're, they're certainly welcome, um, to reach out. For sure. And I, you know, I think this is a really interesting profession. It's very multidimensional. Hopefully our podcast influences maybe some students and young professionals who, who may have some questions for you or want to even come out to Utah State and study with you there. So uh, Benjamin, hey, thank you for great. coming on the podcast. I learned a lot from you today. And this was really interesting to do a deep dive on that 1755 Lisbon earthquake. I had no concept that that influenced a lot of our building practices and around the world, including in the West uh, over over several hundred years. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. So thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation and, and uh, the opportunity to come on and, and speak about it and everything else. So thanks well, so fantastic. Much. It's been awesome. I've learned a lot. Can't wait to follow what you're doing um, in your career and excited to meet your students here on the Gulf Coast tomorrow. So I'll, I'll tell them you Sounds said good. hello and uh, we'll have a good interaction. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great. Thank you so much, Al. We've been meeting with Benjamin George, Associate Professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Planning at Utah State University. We had a fascinating conversation today about the field of landscape architecture, about environmental planning, kind of how those fields can really impact and improve our 
response to disasters, how we can mitigate against disaster losses. And we really did a deep dive there on the 1755 earthquake in Lisbon, Portugal, talked about how the earthquake itself, the tsunami, this massive wall of water that came ashore, and then the fires afterwards really inflicted catastrophic losses there in Portugal back in 1755. And then the influence of that event, how that shaped how we build and plan all over the world, including in the Western culture here several hundred years later. A really fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Benjamin. And we look forward to the next GeoTrek podcast when we'll be talking about a different topic. We're going to be covering a lot of different topics over the next couple of weeks, getting into topics like emergency management, looking at this uh, this field trip that the Utah State University students are doing over spring break. And we're going to get into some discussions as well about the upcoming severe weather season in the Southern Plains, Southeastern U.S. and other areas where we're going to see tornadoes, severe weather, hail, strong winds. It's that time of the year where we start thinking about severe weather in those parts of the country. And we'll have some content related to that as well. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Stay weather aware and we'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrack podcast.